fourth watch starts now. Everybody, you're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be a special edition interview with the creator of the popular documentary film Montauk Chronicles. We'll be delving into the dark history of the top secret deep underground military facility and the horrific web of conspiracies surrounding Camp Hero and the experiments, abductions, and even the famous Montauk monster. We've referenced this film in a previous show, but tonight we sit down and talk with the man behind it all. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submit it for the approval. Of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I call this episode Dark History, Camp Hero, and the Montauk Conspiracy. With special guest Christopher P. Garitano. Well, it's officially Thursday, and that means it's officially time for the Fourth Watch. It is such a blessing to be back with you all, and we've got a great show on tap tonight. If you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. Be sure to head on over to fourthwatchradio.com. That's F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find show archives, links to our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, links to all of our websites, as well as a donate page that will show multiple ways you can help support the Fourth Watch Ministries. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes if that's your preferred method of listening. Now, a couple quick reminders. Hollow Earth Chronicles is now on sale and shipping daily. You can secure your copy at fourthwatchfilms.com. That's fourthwatchfilms, all spelled out, dot com. This is a powerful and groundbreaking, high-quality documentary film that you won't want to miss. So be sure to head on over to fourthwatchfilms.com and get your hands on a copy today. Now, for those of you waiting anxiously on the digital HD purchase option, that will be coming very soon, in early October, on Vimeo and possibly iTunes. Stay tuned for more details. Now, tonight we talk with a seasoned researcher and filmmaker, about the contents of one of the darker conspiracies wrought about on American soil. We're dealing with atrocities and occult science experiments that took place in what is often referred to as Area 51 East. We're dealing with the real history that inspired the hit Netflix series, Stranger Things. Many of you know we've broken down some relative information in a past show, but now we're joined by a man who has done far more research into this area than most. And we're extremely excited to bring this discussion to everyone listening tonight. Most of you know that I rarely have guests on who are not Christians. And we have good reasons for this. But Christopher is very open and respectful towards Christianity and the biblical worldview. And going further, he is an extremely balanced researcher. Christopher is also executive producer and host of a brand new up-and-coming show on the History Channel entitled The Dark Files, which premieres September 8th. Chris's website is mtk 
mtkchronicles.com. That's M-T-K, Montauk, hyphenated, mtkchronicles.com. Lastly, tonight's Bible study segment will be a critical breakdown of biblical separation and going separate ways from other believers when we have to. It sounds controversial because it is, but tonight, following the interview, we will be examining this concept from the book of Acts, so be sure to stay tuned for that as well. So with that said, let's go ahead and welcome on Christopher P. Garitano. Christopher, welcome to The Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? Thank you so much. I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Absolutely, man. I just want to say, for everybody listening to this episode, you've put together a film that blew my mind. Now, I've studied Montauk, and and for those who don't know what Montauk is, we're going to explain that here shortly. But I've studied Montauk. I'm familiar with the conspiracy around it and that there are supernatural, paranormal activities that were taking place during this project or during this, what I would call a black operation. Um, But you have come in here and you have blown my mind with your research and with your filmmaking. You took it to a whole nother level and you put it in a format where people can experience the story. Now, in this in this documentary that you made, I noticed that not only was the content good and the production value good, but you pulled off cinematic styles that most documentaries don't even attempt at. So I want to go ahead and let everybody know that your film is literally top notch. It's off the chain and it is Montauk Chronicles. So that's who we're talking to tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking to the the, the maker the producer, the, the the big guy, we'll just say the guy that did it all, the filmmaker, the writer, the just the creative mind, editor behind Montauk Chronicles. And most of you have heard us talk about this film last year. When Stranger Things blew up, um, we, we did a show about the real life Stranger Things. Uh, Chad Riley joined me and Michael Herr, and we, we made many references to this amazing film. And so now we're actually talking to the guy behind the film. So welcome, Christopher. Tell us about tell us about your film and the story. How did you even get the idea to make a film on such a controversial topic that other people have probably lost their lives over? Well, first of all, thank you so much for just every every word. And um, to answer your question, I um, I had finished my first documentary. It was called Horror Business and put it out in uh, 05 to film festivals. And then uh, 07, it was released. And so I, you know, I had a, a deep interest, a profound interest in, in, in the mystic world and so the paranormal uh, and spirituality, everything since I was a little kid. And so I really wanted to make a movie on that my whole life. And so I had a few other ideas in mind. And a gentleman from the movie I just mentioned, Horror Business, he was one of the subjects because he had, within that story, there were several independent filmmakers trying to you know, make their own uh, independent pictures and break into the business. And this gentleman's name was John David Brody. And, um, he suggested to me that I do something on the Montauk project because I grew up, uh, uh, in New York and was in Montauk quite a bit when I was a little kid. And at first I, I wasn't interested in that particularly because I, I wanted something a little more grounding. The Montauk story scared me a bit because it involved um, a large number of human subjects being kidnapped and then used in these experiments. And there's a variety of them. Yes, there's the alien aspect. Yes, there are the interdimensional aspect and the alien technology and 
you know, the gateways that apparently creatures came out of and, and all of these things. Uh, there, there are several gentlemen, one of which has passed away. His name is Alfred Bielek. They, they had claimed for many years that these are all true. But the thing that terrified me the most was that the idea that there are dark groups who are taking human beings against their will and using them in these in these experiments. So I, I, you know, I was smart enough to know that, OK, well, a movie takes a long period of time to make. I'm pretty much going to be doing everything because it's a very independent venture uh, when you're making films like this. You know, for very little money, you have to basically know everything and do it yourself. And so my time would be occupied for at least a couple of years on this subject. And I don't know how how deep in that rabbit hole I really wanted to go. Ultimately, as you know, I've decided to do it. And the journey was over a decade and it's still going. And um, so that's where it began. And I, I wasn't interested in in adapting because there was a book written in the, in the 90s that I was well aware of. So I wasn't interested in adapting that book. And John David Brody had a few ideas that I thought were good, but I thought the best idea was, okay, well, these gentlemen are still alive, you know, the men telling the, the tale. And it, and it, and it was quite a, an enormously tall tale at that time, only because I was used to all of those aspects of the story in science fiction. I was a kid raised on science fiction and, and, um, and horror films and fantasy films and so all of that was fiction to me. I didn't consider it to be real. I mean, there was a lot of paranormal aspects to it in, in, in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, the alien stuff. But um, I just felt like the, the book read as a, as a kind of a weak science fiction tale. So I wanted to go and speak to these men. And that's where it all started in 06. Uh, I wanted to start talking to the gentlemen who have told that story for so many years. And I think that would be interesting for the audience to witness. And so that's where I began. And I ended up making two movies, the one you saw and the one that I only showed around to a few people in 2012 and decided to remake the movie all over again in 2013. Uh, and, and I started from scratch. And so the one you saw was a movie that began in production in, in 2013, in the very beginning. Now, one of the things that you that you showed in the movie, obviously, you were bringing the, the personal accounts. And I think that's important um, when you hear somebody's personal testimony. Uh, you know, you, it's, it's basically taking every audience member and putting them on a pedestal and saying, now you have to make a decision. Are you going to accept this or are you going to deny this? And at the very least, it should it should at least grab somebody to the point to say, look into these things before denying them, because truth is stranger than fiction. And, you know, we get into these these areas of research. And I know I can only imagine the stress that you were under in making the film. I mean, the type of, of spiritual attacks that might even come your way. Uh, I know what I suffered doing the Hollow Earth film, uh, but you were dealing with with such a dark topic. You know, it's one of the darkest topics in American history. Uh, and I won't say the darkest because I'm sure there's things out there that I don't even know about. But the, the Montauk situation has blown my mind. Um, I, I just want to ask this. When you set out to do this film, you put yourself in danger because you went on location to get certain shots. Did you suffer any strange attacks or, or phone calls or visits from anybody? Um, okay, I can explain it in terms of things I had never experienced before. So beginning, the first thing that I had never experienced before uh, was basically meeting Al Bielek and Stuart Swerdlow and Preston Nichols, all 
grown men, in two cases, elderly men, who were of more than average intelligence, uh, who are telling me that everything I learned in science fiction is real. Everything I learned in the world of the mystic, everything I ever read, it's all real. And that's, they stuck to their story. Al took that story to his grave. He never changed a word. And so the second thing that it was followed up with was when I returned from Stuart Swerdlow's house in 06 for the first time, I was, I felt mentally ill. Um, John Brody was telling me I was having a paradigm shift. It was the first time I ever felt the way I did. I felt like things were revealed to me that terrified me. And um, I'm just being honest, you know. Uh, that's how I felt. And I felt very sick because of it. I felt scared to be in the world for the first time. You know, like there are things that scare me. You worry about things. But the idea that there's this covert operation going on since your birth and it's affecting everyone on the planet is overwhelming, especially if you believe it. And I believed it. I had reason to believe it because I was a, immersed in groups of people, all adults, all, you know, seemingly sound minded adults telling you that this stuff is real and then backing it up with some history. So after I did a little research and, and, and hung around them for a period of time, I was severely affected by it to a detriment, you know, like to the point where I was getting sick. And I didn't like that feeling. I mean, this you know, should have been an exhilarating experience. And so I always wondered, was it the power of suggestion? Was it my fear or was it something else? So the deeper I got into making the picture, it seemed more and more difficult as the years went on. I mean, it took so many years. I mean, you would think this was quite a challenge for a human being uh, and, and it should have taken less time. But for some reason, the entire journey was a decade of my life and very difficult. And so maybe if there was any effect you know, outside effect, per deliberate effect to stop me or slow down the process. It was done in such a way that it was so covert and subtle that, well, not subtle, but the effects weren't subtle, but um, such a covert way that I couldn't really identify where it was coming from. Was it just stress? Was it fatigue from the years? Was it people not understanding why I spent so much time on this project? Was it filling my head with all of this subject matter? I'm not 100% sure, but I would say... There were nights that were very strange and uh, very heavy and abnormally heavy situations psychologically that uh, wasn't me. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't me. And, um, you know, it wasn't I wasn't on any drugs and I don't do drugs and I don't wasn't, you know, indulging. I was trying to fight these ideas and look at it from a very level head, a level, you know, very clear mind and um, wasn't. Uh, wasn't the case. I had a quite a few, few horrible nights working on this picture. No, I can only imagine. Uh, I can only imagine um, when you're dealing with subjects like this, and you know that they're real. Like you are fully convinced that that this is actual history. This is fact. It really does vex one's spirit when they're in the midst of of studying these things. Um, I mean, sleepless nights. You know, and, and again. Um, you know, although we have uh, we, we have some differing, um, you know, stances on our on our background in faith, um, I, I definitely look at it as, as demonic attacks that come in and, and they, it, your mind is a battlefield um, for somebody who's not a Christian. Um, you know, they still suffer the same types of attacks when they're when they're studying this stuff. But I think the perspective is a little bit different. But I can appreciate the fact 
that you stood, I mean, you stuck with it. You didn't buckle, you didn't stop. And, and because of that, you were able to produce a film that is life-changing. I mean, literally, you've, you've got a film that you've produced that is a paradigm shifter in and of itself. So I can totally understand where you're coming from. Now, for the people listening right now who, who maybe don't know a whole lot about Montauk, um, you know, maybe they've seen Stranger Things, and so they have a little bit of an idea. And, and we know that Stranger Things was watered down. Um, the Duffer Brothers, they basically were told um, they could do it. They got the budget for it. But at the same time, they were limited. Like they had to polish down what they had worked on. They had to change the name and they had to make it less Montauk than they wanted to. Um, but that's just how it is sometimes with the mainstream. But if you had to explain to somebody, you know, what was going on, you know, they abduct these children, they, they take them into these secret underground bases. Um, give us a little glimpse into what was actually going on. And obviously I want to get into the idea of the alien technology at some point with the portals stuff like that. But for the for the person that doesn't know anything, yeah, give us a little glimpse into what was happening, some of the projects and the experiments that were taking place. Sure. I'll, I'll go back to the end of World War II. There was something that was established in the United States called Operation Paperclip, where when the Nuremberg trials came into play and that the, the Nazis were you know, going to trial and, and being hung for their crimes, there was uh, a need and a desire to absorb their most brilliant scientists who developed uh, rockets, who developed weapons, and a million other things uh, that involved some very horrible experiments on the part of, of the Germans and the Nazis. So the United States absorbed. We, we took those scientists, didn't execute them, and brought them here to work with us. Now, if you if you if you look at the excuse, they say, well, they were spoils of war. We didn't want the Russians to get them. Uh, it's better that we have them and we do some good with it. Well, they were brought here and they developed more weaponry and more warfare. And according to the legend, this is where the Montauk Project legend begins: is that <clears throat> some of these scientists went over to a place called Brookhaven Labs. Now, that's west of the Camp Hero Air Force Base, which is the place where the Montauk Project allegedly occurred deep beneath the ground. So these gentlemen worked at Brookhaven Labs and continued their studies of experiments they were developing in Germany for Hitler. And so they now were doing stuff for our deep government, you know, covert operations, and that involved, in, in part, a mind control experiment. And it is said by all the gentlemen involved in the Montauk Project that there is an underground railroad system that all over the United States and all over the world, but from Brookhaven Labs to the underground facility all the way east, the furthest eastern tip of Long Island, New York, there is a a base. It's called the Camp Hero Air Force Station. Underneath the Camp Hero Air Force Station, there's supposedly, according to all of these gentlemen and according to legend, a secret facility, an enormous secret facility underneath something called the Sage Radar Tower. And so what they claim was that basically Brookhaven Labs told the scientists of Operation Paperclip that they can no longer work there on record that they have to take the operation elsewhere. So they transferred their 
experiments to the labs underneath the Camp Hero Air Force Station. And this is where it's said by Preston Nichols and Alfred Bielek, uh that this whole thing began. And that's the origin story of it. So what has has been talked about over the years and what these gentlemen claim happened was between 1971 1983, roughly, there were experiments uh, deep beneath the ground in that base, and a lot of the experiments were on unwilling uh, human subjects, mostly boys that were kidnapped off the streets of New York and neighboring suburbs, brought against their will, of course, deep down into that dungeon, and experimented on and the most brutal ways possible for the purposes of fracturing their personalities and their minds and implanting uh, programming for a variety of reasons. This programming, of course, would be uh, a triggering mechanism that would be initialized by a symbol or a word during this kind of mind programming. And later to be used as Manchurian candidate type assassins or in other cases, these gentlemen claim that they were these experiments heightened their psychic abilities for psychic warfare, which you were talking about previously. Um, And in addition to that, they say that there were extraterrestrials that in exchange for some of these human subjects, amongst a few other things, they would give us plans to reverse engineer their technology and use it for our advantage, one of which was a time travel device or an interstellar biorhythmic travel device where you would have two points of entry, the beginning and the end point, and that the subject would be in this machine and that they would go from one place to another instantaneously. So it's also said that a lot of the boys, thousands upon thousands, were used in this type of experiment as a as a as a test dummy. You know, uh, they would be sent through these these stargates or these portals and sent to see where they would go. They would be monitored to see where they would go. Um, Another device that was used in the experiment is dubbed the Montauk chair. The Montauk chair would be this uh, large almost like a dental chair it was described as, uh, but I'm sure a bit more esoteric than that. And they would lay down in the chair and think of an object, a baseball, a glass, you know, uh, anything inanimate, and that the power and technology in this chair would manifest a physical object into reality, the idea of a physical object into reality. And eventually they were experimenting with just pure imagination. They would imagine something and then it would come into reality. So all of these things and stranger things are derived from those ideas that there are quite a few people who claim this is all very real and and very true and that it truly did happen. And there's a purpose in experimentation. You know, years and years of experiments are eventually meant to be used and um, applied and so the gentlemen in the Montauk project claim that at the tail end of the, the thing, they said that the idea was now that they've developed this mind control, they want to start using it on the general population. They want to start applying it. And so these gentlemen felt that was wrong. And it was wrong enough what they were doing deep in the base, but now they want to use it on the rest of us. 
in one way or another. And so these guys claim they crashed the project by using the Montauk chair I was just telling you about and creating a beast from their imagination that kind of tore up the base, scared everybody into shutting the whole thing down. And that pretty much is, is the story. I know a lot about the, the alchemy that the Nazis were, were involved in. Uh, I'm very familiar with, with just much of these things. And so I do believe the story is valid. Now, I, I can't say that everything that's in the records uh, or, or the, you know, the stories that people have passed down, I can't say that they're all 100%, but I feel that the type of uh, torture that these people would, would be put through, you know, whether they experienced everything that they say they did or whether they, they experienced a simulation, um, that I don't know. But I, I want to touch on the Nazi thing real quick. And this is one of those things that comes up all the time. Uh, we, we have a major segment on, on the Nazi situation in the Hollow Earth Chronicles. The Nazis had a, a massive team of psychic mediums. And, uh, you know, the, the popular term for this, this group of women was the Vril Maidens. And of course, the Vril Society was the secret inner workings of the popular Thule Society. And in this, this process, uh, there was a seance, and we break this down in the film, but uh, the, uh, Maria Orsic was, was one of the, the women. She was one of the main mediums, and she had another woman with her. They went through a process of channeling to get information from these off-world entities. And it was in these channeling sessions that she began to automatic write. And she was automatic writing, uh, and, and this is crazy, man. One of the sets of automatic writing that she produced was in a coded Templar's language, and then the other one was ancient Sumerian. Now, she didn't know anything about these languages. As a matter of fact, it took time and years to be able to decode these writings. Wow. But when they decoded these writings, what they found was they put them together. Once, once decoded, both of the documents came together, and they were plans for what we know as the Deglaca. Now, some call this a UFO. Some call it the bell. Some people say that it was a time, uh, a time travel device. But the technology that they were receiving in Nazi Germany on record came from extraterrestrial entities or intergalactic entities. Now, I don't look at it as extraterrestrial as much as I look at it as interdimensional, but regardless, we're dealing with off-world entities that are not human, and they're bringing technology to the to the mass, uh, we'll, we'll just say to, to some of these governments that have mass power in the world. They're bringing the technology, and it lines right up with what you're saying that they continue to do in America after the war. So we see it in Nazi Germany. We see it in America. It's not a it's not a shock that, that we created NASA through the the operatives that came in through paperclip. I mean, this is a fact. I mean, uh, Werner von Braun. You know, I have a friend that will probably correct me and say it's Werner von Braun. But <laughs> regardless, uh, von Braun said we got our help, our technological help. We got the technology, the blueprints, the, the information from them. And he points up. So we, we see this carrying over from Nazi Germany entering into uh, the American way of life, and they're doing it as covert as they can. So I just want to say that I believe that there's truth to this idea of, of what took place at Montauk. Um, now, this this idea of the Montauk monster, and, and I don't want to ask questions that are going to be uh, putting you on the spot, but obviously we can speculate a little bit. I think it's safe to speculate within a certain uh, boundary, but in Stranger Things, we had what was called the, Demi, was the, the, the Demigorgon. Am I saying that right? Yes. Yes, I believe it is. This is the interdimensional entity that, I mean, he had access to another realm, but he could cross over into our reality and take somebody with him. 
That's what that that's my take on it. Um, I'm assuming that the demigorgon is what they call the Montauk monster. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, I've, used, I've heard that term, the Montauk monster, used on a couple of things, including a creature, you know, a decomposing creature that they found on the beach. But Junior, the Montauk monster, is what you're referring to. They called it Junior. Um, yeah, that's where they got the idea from the demigorgon and uh, um, uh, for Stranger Things, of course, you know. Uh, and and what's my thought on it? I mean, after the thing is, the more research you do. And con- we're talking about confirmed research, things that everybody unanimously can, can't dispute. They say, yeah, no, that's been confirmed. Yeah, most people don't know it, but it has been confirmed. So the more I've had so many of those that it's really difficult for me to deny uh, most of the Montauk project. So I believe in it, too. And, I, and, and, and so, like I said, if you study quantum physics and you understand that for sure, the governments of the world have experimented with psychic abilities and tried to heighten them and have had success with it, remote viewing and so on, you know, Project Stargate. Um, you know, things that have been released to the pub- public. Um, uh, Gordon Cooper has talked about a time travel experiment in the past. You know, some of the most brilliant scientists believe that for certain it is beyond a theoretical possibility. Um, so all of these things, if you take those pieces of research and say, OK, well, these being confirmed by brilliant minds, you know, uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, one of our Apollo moonwalkers, have confirmed that the, the governments of the world have been working with extraterrestrials. So if all of these things are said by these brilliant, credible minds. How can you deny that this is a strong possibility or even perhaps truth? So I, I this is what's driven me through this whole thing. But again, my focus, I felt, because there's so many people that are confused that because and, and rightfully so, because we have this deluge of science fiction and fantasy right now. Just about every movie in the movie theater is a science fiction or fantasy picture. And I, you know, I wonder why. But, you know, we had t- decades of movies that were about people. And right now it's about superheroes and fantasy and. Uh, you know, I just watched Ghost in the Shell, which, of course, has been a story that's been around since forever. And it was very derivative. But, you know, all these things are out there consistently. And um, it's confusing people because a lot of the people don't realize that s- stuff is real. This stuff is real. Uh, but I think then again, now so more than ever, a lot of people are open to it more so than ever. And it's a strange time because clearly there's something going on. You know, there's something happening here. Uh, I guess it's the shift they were talking about that would happen instantane- instantaneously in 2012. Is a, it's been a gradual thing, but it's certainly strong and it's certainly happening. So I don't deny any of this stuff and I don't deny the Montauk monster, the junior thing. Um, I don't deny it. But I, what I do, I'm very cautious of are the sometimes, regardless of truth, there are quite a few hucksters that jump onto the bandwagon and, and try to profit off of um, people's believability uh, and the fact that people are trusting. And so you have to be very careful of anybody. You know, I know there are certain people out there that claim that they were part of the the Montauk Project and that they offer deprogramming uh, sessions for quite a sum of money, plus the nature of those deprogramming sessions are obscene. So I, I, I would be very careful, regardless of what you believe, because I believe in a lot of it, too, um, because I feel like a lot of it's been confirmed. 
but you still have to be careful if some person just says they were there. You, 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 you demand, I would demand proof. I would demand some proof from that person before I would allow them to manipulate me in any way, mentally, physically, or spiritually. Well, you know, uh, even dealing with uh, what, what the popular uh, title of MK Ultra. You know, people talk about this MK Ultra program and now how it has expanded from isolated locations to, to where they're they're implementing MK Ultra onto celebrities. Um, I mean, we see celebrities with they'll have a mental breakdown in the middle of Hollywood. I mean, out in the street. Um, and you know, I, I don't know what your stance is on the Illuminati, and you know, we don't have to go into that area. But you know, my take is that the Illuminati is a historic group of secret conspirators. Uh, we have we do have historical evidence of the Illuminati. George Washington mentioned it in some of his early letters, so you can read it at the Library of Congress. Um, but some people, when you say Illuminati, their their mind goes out into left field. Um, so you know, I don't I try not to use Illuminati that that title too often. But regardless, with the Illuminati and the system that's been set up with celebrities and and you know social conditioning experiments, uh, I do believe that that the conditioning is going into the movies, into the television shows, and they're deprogramming. The things that we've, 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 you know, the things that we think we know, they're deprogramming us, and then they're reprogramming us to the things that they want to prepare us for. And I think they're trying to prepare us for the, this great shift that's been taking place. And I think that uh, going back into a biblical perspective here, uh, the Bible speaks of, a, of of what we would call a seven-year period. Now, there's debate on is it really a seven-year tribulation? Is it a three and a half-year tribulation? Is it less than three and a half? Um, everybody has a different terminology. But regardless, we do know of a time coming upon the earth that Jesus said is going to be the great tribulation, greater than any tribulation that the earth has ever seen or will ever see. And there is going to be uh, opening up of portals. The Bible talks about the bottomless pit, the abyss, is going to get opened up, and there are going to be entities and creatures, some somewhat are very much like insectoids. You've got these locust hybrid entities that are demonic, and they, they've got a sting like a scorpion. Uh, we've got all types of things uh, in Scripture. Isaiah talks about giants coming up from inside the earth and fulfilling God's wrath upon wickedness. Now, these are these are things that I think people are being conditioned for by the mainstream, but they're being conditioned from a different perspective on it. You know, nowadays people think it's cool to be a superhero. You know, they they want the power. You know, and so if somebody came along and said, "Hey, we're doing we're doing a, a private government experiment." Um, you know, we can experiment on you and possibly, uh, you know, have you engaging in, in psychic abilities or superhuman strength or time travel. You see, the problem is the average person would get excited and jump on that based on the conditioning from the movies and the TV shows. They want to go to Professor X's school. You know, they want to go to Harry Potter's witchcraft university. I mean, people want these things. And what you've done in the film is you've shown that there's no glory in these types of projects. You know, they're torturous. They're not something that you want to sign up for. I mean, you're literally submitting yourself as a lab rat who may not make it out alive. Am I getting your perspective correct here? You're very, very correct. That's exactly how it is. And you can't, and and you have to be careful of even today's technologies. Again, we were watching this ghost in the shell last night. And it's like, look, I've been familiar with this concept for years. You know, the original came out many years ago. And then that was derivative of a lot of other things, William Gibson and Blade Runner and all that stuff. So, um, but the point is, you know, people would be so quick to incorporate um, technology into their bodies because it would be an extra hard drive for your brain. It would enhance your intelligence, right? It would enhance your, it would be a false psychic ability because you can literally have telepathy would be instantaneous. 
you can you can talk without moving your mouth at distances. You know, you could communicate with a person because you both have this device attached to your brain. Um, but what you're also giving up is your soul. You know, whatever device this is, whatever network it's connected to has access to you wholeheartedly, 100 percent. And so this is where we're going. You know, people are unfortunately, this is where we're going. If you really pay attention to modern technology, this is where we're going. And and people will accept it and they'll continuously invite it in because it's being presented to you as entertainment or something really fun to have. So you're going to get to become the superhero. You're going to have enhanced strength. You'll one day, you know, way, way in the future, but you'll be able to transplant your brain into a cybernetic body and have abilities like you could only imagine in science fiction. Uh, but will you accept it or will you stay who you are? You know, um, and that's that's the whole idea behind that. Science fiction is like a caveat. It's a warning. It's a it's a caution. Uh, and, and so it should be taken as that. I was saying earlier to you that uh, I believe that our greatest science fiction writers or prophets, they're channeling the future as a warning. Philip K. Dick is warning you of what's to come. H.G. Wells is warning you of what's to come. And of course, the Bible is warning you of what's to come. So, uh, you know, these things are, are important, I think, to consider. And, um, and so, you know, this, inf- I'm putting this information out there as something to, to fear, consider, but not allow fear to be your master. Whereas I feel a lot of the people who are, who, who are teaching some things that they claim they learned in the Montauk project are, are really programming you to be afraid of everything. And I think the instantaneous, you know, way to deal with it is to not be afraid, is to know that you're, you know, to be aware, but not be afraid. Don't be afraid of everything. Don't, don't allow it to overcome you. And, um, uh, I mean, I've, I've had to practice this because I've been so deep in this stuff. I mean, like things I can't even say here on the on the radio that I've been involved with some of these people that uh, it's scary, man. It really is terrifying that these people are out there and that that other people are embracing them with open arms. Uh, it's terrifying. You know, the Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world. And it's for a time. It's for a, what some people like to call a dispensation. Now, I'm not a dispensationalist, but regardless, uh, the Bible does say Satan is the ruler of this world. And we're told that he is going to come in the last days with lying signs and wonders. We're talking about demonic miracles. The Bible also says that we're going to be experiencing a mark that is going to come across. It's literally going to be delivered across the world. And, uh, you know, the popular mark of the beast. A lot of people have theories about this. Some good, some not so good. But the mark of the beast would seem to line up with the technology that would, in fact, change your soul. And it would be seen as a good thing at first. You'll get certain abilities. You'll probably have uh, clairvoyant powers that are really not clairvoyant powers at all, like you said. Uh, but it's actually a technology-based system. But it's allowing the person to, exper- uh, to experience what they would think are clairvoyant powers. Um, and I also think that this is, is kind of going to be synthesizing the pineal gland, creating a synthetic religion of sorts, because people make religion out of anything that they want. Some people make religion out of sports, out of their job, out of technology, out of science, you name it. People have a religion, whether they want to admit it or not, they make a religion out of all sorts of things. And I think that this is going to be such a synthetic religion 
that it's going to offer uh, basically a reality that you can create for yourself until the rubber meets the road. And that's my concern is that people are going to jump on technology because they see the good of the technology without weighing in the consequences that, you know, potentially could be waiting on the other side of that door. So I think it's very interesting that they've been working on this technology, trying to hone this technology, you know, these, these dark cabals of high, high ranking government officials, part of the shadow government. Um, but I, I just wanted to get your take on, on one thing on that, um, when they when they're dealing with this agreement, and I don't remember if you said this in the show or if you said it before we started, but they came into the the, the rulers or the the heads of this project uh, had some sort of an agreement with what they would call alien entities or extraterrestrials, where they would give certain subjects to them, and in return they would be given some technology that they could play with. And I'm reminded back to when Eisenhower was president, and I, I usually catch a little flack for for bringing this up, but <clears throat> excuse me. We have documented information that Eisenhower was part of a blackout. I mean, he literally disappeared for, for such and such a time, and which that doesn't happen with presidents. They, they can't go off the record. And he literally disappeared. And in that time, they said, well, he was just getting some dental work done. But we now have documents uh, that explain that Eisenhower was meeting with an advanced group of beings that the Sumerians would have called the Anunnaki. Uh, the Hopi Indians called them the ant people. You know, the, these Anunnaki show up in many cultures. Um, biblically speaking, we would call them the fallen angels or, or even part of what was called the watchers, some of the angels that fell. But the Anunnaki have been parading around with mankind. Every so many years, they'll meet with governments of the world. Uh, we do have some some evidence to back this up. But the, the agreement that, that was brought to Eisenhower was that let us operate without any any interference. You know, we want to abduct people into our ships. Uh, we want to do science on them. We want we want to experiment with them and, and even crossbreed with them. Um, but the other thing was, if you work with us, we will be peaceful with you as a government, and we will in return give you technology. Now, what's interesting is that these two accounts, you know, the Montauk account and the Eisenhower account, they're two separate standalone situations. I mean, they were not happening right at the same time with the same people. So I have to believe that there's truth, that there were these uh, these interdimensional or extradimensional entities that were working alongside of the heads of the Montauk Project. Um, I mean, it's happening in different parts of the same government. Uh, do you have a comment on the Eisenhower situation? Are you familiar with this? I am somewhat. Um, you know, clearly, you, you know much more about it than I do, but... Um yeah, I mean, and I've heard these things. I, I've heard similar stories about different uh, folks in the government, uh, and and some have again. Like I try to, I try to weigh my my chips on um, the things that unanimously have been confirmed, you know, and because that's you're always coming strong, coming forward. I believe in in, in a lot of these things, uh, but I just mean like the fact that you know the governments, the ones that are parts of them are that are lying to us can't deny certain things that's where you get them and that's where you're able to say to everyone we do not need disclosure from this group of people when we already have it and let's start disclosing it to ourselves you know like let's just declare it and say folks let's be intelligent about this and where things get muddied for me is when um and not in this case, because you're bringing up some incredible points and other things that should be focused on. But at the worst case scenario is when I see, um, you know, groups of people 
listening to some of the people that I know are making things up and just without any credibility, without anything tangible, they go and repeat it as if it was truth. And um, I th that I have a difficult time with because, you know, I've been on a mission for over a decade and it's like, I think mainly it's to allow uh, the people that receive the information to think for themselves and make a decision, the natural decision that I've made and that you've made. It's very important that they also make that decision naturally because it's strong. Now they understand they can't be swayed at that point. And so that's what I really focus on. And um, But I'm open to, you know, you, you, you've been talking about some incredible stuff that I think obviously people need to know about and, uh, and, and we are, and we're talking about this information, but it should always be further fortified by, um, Hey, this has been confirmed, not just in, in our research, but in, in the most mainstream of media cannot deny this. They won't talk about it, but they can't deny it. So, yeah. And, you know, we do, we always vet, uh, the fourth watch is big on vetting before we have anybody on the show. Um, and, and again, when I invited you on the show, I had seen your film and, and I saw that you had presented the research, um, some that I had not come on to, but much that I had come on to. And so I was very confident in, in what you presented. Um, and when we get into the idea of the Eisenhower thing and UFOs over DC, um, extraterrestrial meetings with government, um, strangely enough, we have the FBI vault material now, uh, that's been open to the public for anybody who has any desire. They can go look up FBI vault. They can go right there and they can pull up documents. Now, granted, there's a lot of uh, permanent marker. <laughs> uh, you know, that, sure. That's the only way I could explain it. You get about two thirds of the document and then the rest of it is blacked out with with what looks like Sharpie. Um, but they're giving you enough to connect the dots. You know, there are still people in the government that are fighting to release this information so, but you know, I, I'm with you. Um, many people out there, they take this information and they want to exploit it. They want to make money off of it. And what they do is they start to become conspiracy theorists. They start to theorize um, all the craziest things that they can't substantiate with one shred of evidence. And I'm okay with speculation so long as we say we're speculating here. But we, we see with podcasts and radio shows and documentaries and even TV shows, the same thing. They present a whole lot of speculation. I mean, look at ancient aliens. You know, they'll, they'll give some very interesting information, but then they'll turn around and speculate on things without any shred of evidence. And so that's one thing I did appreciate about your film is that you were coming correct. You were coming with actual research, uh, which is, you know, that's that's one of our, our main goals of, of doing the Fourth Watch radio program. But I, I have a, a question, and, and this is going to, you know, not to, you know, shift gears too heavy here, but this is going to probably bring a little speculation uh, from your part, but I'm just curious from your research. Um, we know in the New Age movement, which is really not new at all, New Age religion really, it's all, it's basically the, the mystery Babylon schools of, of, you know, thousands of years. But one of the practices that is getting more popular is a little known practice they call astral projection. Now, with astral projection, the average person is going to laugh it off and say it's not possible. But it is possible. Um, many, there's even people who have, who, who've become Christians from the New Age movement and they've given their testimonies of, some of these activities. But regardless, with astral projection, the the spirit or, you know, I don't want to say the soul, but, you know, the spirit of the man um, or the woman is able to project outside of the body. Now, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, the government has programs where they're remote viewing and this is declassified. This is anybody can learn about this. Um, so uh, remote viewing is kind of similar to astral projection, 
But when we talk about the time travel experiments that took place or the alleged time travel experiments, we should say, um, in Montauk, do you think it's possible that the, the children or the, the, the people that were put in the chair, that were put into the machine, uh, do you think it's possible that what they were experiencing was actually nothing more than a digital projection or even an astral projection? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. I, you know, a lot of the things that people came back with were so hallucinatory and a lot of it, um, in a way represents kind of man-made science fiction films like that I'm familiar with. So I always wondered if these things were manufactured memories. Like you have a gentleman who I think is, uh, disingenuous who is telling people that he was at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which is a tall order. Okay. And uh, he extracted blood from Christ and all of that. Now, you could believe what you want. I don't believe he was particularly there. And um, but he's telling people that. Now, one of the questions I had for him was, did you did you ever consider perhaps that this was a manufactured memory? Um, and he doesn't want to admit that it may have been. Uh, he insists that he was there. And I just I, I don't know. It seems like a a way to uh, convince people to believe him who people of faith because of course if you truly believe this man was with Christ you might want to start following him too you know and uh, i think it's a real sinister operation i don't i don't think that uh it's it's true and i i think anyone makes a claim like that you really need to be careful you need to be very careful of that person so you do think it's possible that there, uh, some of this uh, so-called time travel was actually uh, manufactured experiences, which have lived on with these people in their minds as being real? I think some of them, yes, like swimming with dolphins on Mars and, and stuff like that, like I think might be a manufactured memory. Who knows, for the simple purpose that if they're going to tell the story, they're going to sound insane to most people, you know? Um, because we don't know Mars to be like that, to have an ocean and to have dolphins, you know, uh, we know Mars to be a desert planet. So, and it might, you know, there might be facilities underneath and but there's a lot of evidence of that. And, you know, well, there's some evidence, uh, to consider, but I just think some of these ideas, some of the things I've heard, and I've heard so many stories that they could be, uh, manufactured memories to cover up the truth. Some of them might be melded in with real things. And again, I'm not denying any of this. I'm just saying I, I need to consider all possibilities before I make a declaration of what is true and what isn't in this case. And um, sometimes I get the gut feeling, the instinct feeling that what, okay, if you thought like the people running the program, you know, think like them for a second. It's like, you know, you have a, a multi-layered covert operation with many, many layers of protection around it to keep it covert. And so that's a very intelligent way to approach it, to kind of, you know, make people seem crazy, uh, make them forget what they actually experienced and manufacture memories in case they were to go and tell anybody this stuff. No one's ever going to believe them. And in most cases, they're not going to want to tell anybody the memories they have because they're in fear of being locked up in, a, in an asylum. So that, that, I think, at least at one time was the, the technique to, uh, to keep people quiet. Well, it does seem like a very uh, logical safeguard from the perspective of the conspirators, no doubt. Um, yeah, I've struggled with the idea of time travel 
um, when we did the show uh, talking about Stranger Things and, and referencing your film a little bit, um, one of my guests on the show, he mentioned that he referenced uh, a passage in the Bible where uh, God turned back uh, the sundial. Now, again, I, I don't think you can take that and, and say that that means that man has the ability to change time. I, you know, I still am not fully sold uh, and, and maybe I'm ignorant to it. Maybe it's because I haven't researched it enough. But I still think that, you know, the only entities that would have access to outside of time. Again, as humans, we, we live in the dimension of time. Like this is what we experience. This is what we know. We were created inside of time. But God is outside of time. Uh, I believe the entities, um, you know, the original entities, whether they be the creatures of heaven uh, or the fallen angels, I believe they can. I mean, they're they're timeless beings, you know, because they were created before time uh, within what we know as time on Earth. But I think it's it's kind of a scary situation to think about. And I know that it does cause a paradigm shift for some people, but I'm personally not fully convinced of time travel. Um, I think that it's more along the lines of a simulation um, where a person is able to astral project. That's where I land on it. And I'm not criticizing people that, that you know, don't share my view. Um, but I was just curious on your take on that because it, it's a sticky topic. Uh, you, you Google time travel and you're going to probably find uh, the world's craziest nutcase websites selling $30 headgear to time travel. Um, you know, and that's the problem with these, these topics because people are going to exploit them and try to make money and try to basically, uh, draw people in on the hype. So I'm very cautious about the time travel thing. Uh, even though the Glocka in Nazi Germany was declared to be some type of a time travel device. Um, I, I, I just, I feel like we have to go back to the source of it. And if the source is, uh, the source goes back to these these uh, malevolent beings posing as angels of light, uh, according to the New Testament. But these angels of light appear to be good. They appear to be holy and the, these these beautiful light bearers. Um, but knowing from my perspective, being a Christian, I look at it as it's part of the end times deception, getting people locked into the coming uh, universal religion, which is going to use technology uh, and you know spiritual manipulation on people. So I think time travel may be something that falls into that category where it's a projection. But uh, I'm always open to hearing people's thoughts on the matter because I, I try to keep an open mind uh, in hearing different people's stances because I know my stances are you know pretty crazy to some people. So that's why I wanted to kind of ask you on that and see what your thoughts were. Yeah, I, I mean, in regard to any kind of time travel technology or even um, theoretical knowledge, my my reservoir of time travel knowledge is, is kind of shallow. But what I do know is that for every person that might be seemingly insane that believes in the, the concept, then you have somebody like, in, let's just say modern times, you have somebody like Ronald Mallet who believes in it strongly. Uh, and he's a pretty brilliant guy. So I, um, you know, and then you have, you know, Gordon Cooper talking about a time travel experiment at one point to uh, Lee Spiegel. So, and he was serious. So, you know, could it be actually traveling on this particular timeline backwards or forwards in time? Or is it some other dimension, perhaps, you know, that you're traveling to an alternate reality uh, that may seem like the past? I don't know. That's kind of where I lean exactly, um, sure. and, and I liken it almost to the uh, the popular, um, you know, I, I don't want to call it a fad because it's been going on for years and years. I mean, it's an ancient practice, but in South America, uh, you've got this this booming industry of these religious uh, spiritual centers where you can go and you can take the ayahuasca, 
And um, the people who take the ayahuasca, they're literally experiencing another dimension or, you know, what appears, it's like a projection almost, but it's spiritual. And they're, they come into contact with these entities and these beings. They, they come back with messages. Um, and so I kind of liken the idea of time travel uh, to the ayahuasca experience, but that's my, you know, I, I've never done ayahuasca and I never will. Um, but, you know, matter of fact, I think it's very dangerous. Um, but at the end of the day, I kind of liken their experiences in a similar court. So I definitely think it, it has to do with more of a, some type of a spiritual projection or an astral projection, experiencing some other type of dimension. Um, I mean, what is sci- science is saying now, what is, we, they believe there's somewhere between 12 and 14 dimensions. Yeah. And again, I have to note, you know, like, I'm not afraid to say this, like I, I, I'm not a drug user and I, I'm a very against them, but I did have an experience with a tribal psychedelic drug, not ayahuasca, a different one. And, um, it was an experience like that. I, I think it was beyond hallucination. I think it was certainly some kind of dimensional experience. Um, you know, and I, I wouldn't want to go back there to tell you the truth. It was too intense, too too profoundly intense, perhaps maybe what you experience even when you die. I don't know. Well, I don't but, believe uh, that they should call them hallucinogens. You know, I did a show sure. with a guy um, that, that came out of the, the hip-hop industry. He's working with uh, one of the largest names in hip-hop today. And uh, he came out of all that, and uh, we were talking about the drugs, the, the what, what society calls hallucinogens. And I don't believe people are actually hallucinating. I think they're literally peering into another dimension, and they're experiencing actual entities. Um, so I, I, I really think it's a disservice. Uh, it's downplaying what these these uh, substances really are. You know, sure. I, so that, that's my take on it. Oh yeah, it's much more intense than a simple change in your visual perspective, you know, because like a hallucination would be something very visual. Um, and in this case, it's emotional. It's powerful. You're, you're transcending even with your eyes closed. So it's not just hallucination. It's something else. You're, you have a different perspective. You're, you know, it seems like things are all at once unhinged, but at the same time, you're open to ways of thinking you've never thought of before. So, um, Definitely very intense situation. And I think that's why, you know, young braves would have vision quests on the stuff. I'm actually writing a finishing a script that has a lot to do with this kind of tribal experience with a a certain route that uh, natives used. And it's, you know, it's it's important to try and understand. I mean, there was that great uh, motion picture um, Altered States by Ken Russell, where uh, this brilliant scientist was was taking a, a tribal hallucinogenic and actually was regressing back into a Neanderthal, which was quite a, um, you know, quite a concept to think about. He was turning back into ancient man. So I don't know. It's an interesting concept, not you know, just just as science fiction goes. Yeah, but but even though they, they want to deem it science fiction, I mean, I still think there's some truth to these things. Um, a lot of truth, actually. Um, but but in the idea of the hallucinogens. Um, obviously, they have been able to synthesize these things with modern technology and create, you know, a, a man-made version in a lab with chemicals. Um, but a lot of these drugs that we have that are that are synthetic, they go right back to natural occurring substances uh, that esoterics and mystics have been using for thousands of years in their religious ceremonies. And so, I, I really have a hard time calling it a hallucinogenic drug for sure. Um, but when you see these things, uh, when people go in these these trips or these experiences, um, they come back sometimes with messages, sometimes even things that are prophetic in their own lives. 
And I think that's where people become to get, uh, they, they start to, you know, feel that they're dependent on their trip to, you know, once a year or once every two years, they got to go back to the rainforest of Peru and they got to go back into that realm. Um, you know, and, and again, I would never want to do that personally. Um, you know, before I was, before I was walking with, with the Lord, I used to do all types of drugs. Um, you know, some natural, some synthetic, but I remember having some experiences where I peered into other dimensions and, and I didn't even know what I know today. I mean, I was literally experiencing something totally spiritual and the entities that I came into contact with were not generous. They were not, they were not there to help me. And, uh, I could not wait. I found myself praying that I would exit. You know, I remember one night it was like eight to 10 hours of being in another realm. Sure. And I mean, it it changed my life to where I, I literally, I I said, I never want to go back there. What I experienced was real. Of course it was real. Of course it was real. You know, I had similarly, uh, profound experiences with that stuff. But if, if we're, you know, dealing with this technology getting better and better, uh, the, 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 you know, even if it's an implantable microchip or some type of hardware that's implanted into your system, whether it's a nanobot that's injected and it, it replicates your DNA, um, you know, th- there's many possibilities with this whole transhumanism movement. But with this technology, I believe they're going to be able to um, allow the same types of experiences that these so-called hallucinogenic keys are opening up for people, but they'll be able to experience these things without having to take a substance because it'll already be implanted into their mind. And I think that that's going to be part of, um, you know, what we call the greatest deception of all time, where, you know, a ruler is going to rise up and he's going to unite people around the world under his world religion. And it's not going to be a religion, I think, that that people assume. They assume it's going to be like going to church or it's going to be, uh, you know, going to the temple or, or whatever. I think it's going to be more of a interdimensional supernatural experience where people feel that they are their own gods. And I think that that's kind of the the movement that we're shifting into. I want to make a quick comment. I know we don't have a lot of time left. Uh, you mentioned about the, the the shift taking place around 2012. A lot of people said, oh, it was just a hoax. Nothing happened. Well, when you talk to some of the Native Americans who better understand uh, the Mayan prophecies, uh, what you find out is that it was actually a shift beginning in 2012 and escalating through 2016. And they say that the old gods are going to be slowly working themselves back up to the surface of the earth and that the gates of the earth are going to open up and there's going to be reanimated bones of the giants or according to the Bible, what we would call the Nephilim, uh, the, the, the hybrid offspring, the reptilian offspring of fallen angels and women. Um, they've got prophecies, even in Native American Indian uh, culture, that they're going to be rising up from literally the bowels of the earth. And it strangely connects with Bible prophecy. So I think that all these things are kind of moving. Uh, it's like a big chessboard, and the pieces are getting moved in different areas, uh, preparing for the things that are coming. You know, So I think it's a very interesting uh, discussion to, to investigate Montauk uh, because of the technology they were using. And to think that this was so long ago, how much more advanced is it today? And so um, kind of closing out on the Montauk topic, I, I want to ask you that question um, what are your thoughts about where it is now? Obviously, um, you go to Montauk, you know, you go to the base, um, things appear to be shut down over there. But where do you think it moved? What is what what do you think the face of this type of technology is today uh, within secret government projects? I think it's being applied in many ways to if it's real. And I believe a good deal of it is it's being applied. Look around you. I mean, um, look at the, just count the amount of public shootings there have been in, in 
and that are that are unexplainable. You can't you can't understand why it happened. You can try and put an explanation to it. It's just such a sobering uh, situation to realize that uh, there's something really going on, something terrible. So I think in part it's being applied. What the chaos is being created for, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's too much in abundance and it's too bizarre to just say it's happening. It's happening because of tensions. There's always been tensions. This is uh, overboard. And there have been reports from people saying that, you know, the ones that have survived it have said, I don't understand even how this happened, you know, why I even thought this way, you know. So I think, unfortunately, it's in, in ways it's being applied to us. But you can resist it. It's not as powerful as they would want you to think. I know I said this in the introduction, but um, you can go to mtkchronicles.com. That's MTK, abbreviation for Montauk, mtkchronicles.com. And uh, you've, got, you've got the film available on there. You've got a lot of information, a great summary written out. Um, you got marketing materials. So I definitely want to steer people over there to check that out. Um, is there uh, an online pay-per-view version of your film currently? Y- yes, there is. If you go to vhx.com, uh, vincentharoldxavier.com, vhx.com, uh, and just type in Montauk Chronicles and you can rent it uh, or buy the download. Excellent, excellent. I definitely recommend the film. Um, it's Like I said, you have amazing reenactments. Uh, the production quality was just off the chain. Um, and then to learn how little of a budget you had, uh, I mean, it makes sense why it took you so long to make the film because you spared uh, no expense uh, with the quality. The, the, the quality of the film, I mean, it looks, it's top notch. So uh, again, I definitely recommend the film. I've seen it. I'm looking forward to watching it again, actually. And uh, I've recommended the film to many people. So uh, I'm going to continue to promote the film. And I look forward to uh, checking out your TV program coming up. Of course, of course. Thank you so much, too. It was a great conversation today. Absolutely, man. It's my honor and my pleasure. Uh, it's very rare to meet a filmmaker like myself that takes these topics seriously. Um, but if it's done the right way, it's going to be received the right way. And that's it's a challenge of every filmmaker. If you're making a documentary film, you've got to present the information in a way that people can actually digest it. And you made it in a way to where it's a little overwhelming at times. But every hard-hitting documentary is going to be overwhelming at times. Um, I mean, it, it can be an information overload, but you did it in a way where the average person who knows nothing about Montauk, they can watch your film, they can be educated, and they can be stimulated to research these things. So again, thank you so much, man, and uh, we look forward to talking with you again, Chris. Thank you so much, and I'm happy to come back anytime. Well, that was an interesting discussion, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. With such dark topics at hand, I'm really eager to move us into a time of biblical edification. I want us to study an area tonight of scripture that's oftentimes overlooked, that I feel is extremely relevant in the life of the believer. Tonight we examine the biblical separation of Paul and Barnabas. These two brothers in Christ were not only dear friends and co-laborers of the gospel, but these two men were partners in vast missionary journeys. Barnabas was actually the one who accepted Paul first in the early days of his conversion. After the life-changing event on the road to Damascus, Paul headed to Jerusalem with high hopes to join up with the disciples. But Paul had been previously waging war against the Christians, and he had a savage reputation. 
Needless to say, the disciples were scared of Paul, and rightly so. But Barnabas took Paul, and he brought him to the disciples, and he declared unto them that Paul had been radically converted by God. So this is the beginning of what would become a powerful, divinely appointed friendship and even kinship of Paul and Barnabas. Now, I want us to fast forward approximately 15 years. These brothers had been traveling, they'd been ministering and communing together nonstop practically. Some people say that it was longer than 15 years. But after these long, fruitful years of service together, something happens that causes a sharp disagreement between the two brothers. So much that they ended up going separate directions altogether. Now, let's head over to Acts chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 35 through 41. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. Okay, there is a lot going on here. So let me break this down. Paul and Barnabas, the evangelical dream team of their day, had come to a place in their missionary journeys where Paul wanted them to go back and make visitations to every place that they had previously traveled and spread the gospel. And Paul thought it would be a good idea just to go and check up on everyone, encouraging them and holding them accountable. This would have been a huge blessing and it would have required a lot of time, but it would have been an amazing adventure. But there was just one problem. Barnabas wanted to bring along his cousin, John Mark. Now we learn that they are cousins when we get to Colossians chapter 4 verses 10. So Barnabas says to Paul, yeah, great idea. Let's do this. Let's just bring John Mark with us. Okay, no big deal, right? It's his cousin. So let him come. Well, not exactly. This same John Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas previously while they were on the mission field in a place called Pamphylia. Now, we don't know exactly why he departed from them. The Bible doesn't really tell us that, but it probably wasn't for a good reason, as we will see in a few minutes. So John Mark abandons Paul and Barnabas for unknown reasons in the middle of doing missionary work. And later on, Barnabas decides he wants to bring him back in the same areas of ministry. And this really, really bothered Paul. It's important to note that Paul was not holding a grudge. And I want to break this down here in a few minutes. But he actually felt that John Mark should not have the opportunity to go with them again because he had already burned them in their time of need. This brother literally bolted on Paul and Barnabas while they needed his assistance. And that's not really a commendable act. And Paul didn't feel that he should be welcomed on their journey again. Now, forgiving somebody is one thing, and we are commanded to forgive people. But putting yourself back into a bad situation is not exactly a biblical command. It's a choice. You can do it. You can allow people back into your life or you don't have to. It's up to you. But what you do have to do is forgive them. But nothing in the Bible states that we have to continue allowing people to hurt us or do us wrong. We forgive them unlimited times, yes, but we don't have to keep allowing somebody to burn us. 
So Barnabas wants to show John Mark compassion, mercy, grace. That's, that's one of the arguments people say. Barnabas wants to bring John Mark back and allow him to come on their journey. But Paul says, no, it's not happening, not on my watch. And this turned into a sharp contention between he and Barnabas. But the question is, how big was this disagreement really? Because on the surface, it doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. Okay, you know, don't let him come, big deal, whatever. But it was such a big deal. It caused two men of God to go their separate ways. Men who had a long span of ministry together. And here's the million dollar question that most people ask. Who was right and who was wrong? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? Well, it's natural for many people to assume that Paul was right because he's such a popular apostle. He's a superhero of the faith, even though he was the one who suggested the challenge to Barnabas. He challenged what Barnabas offered. He says, no, we don't want to bring your cousin. But the answer is that neither of them were wrong or sinful in the matter, according to the scripture. You see, they both departed. They went their separate ways, but they continued to do God's work for the kingdom. And both of them were fruitful and they carried out the Great Commission continuously. A couple thoughts on this I want to mention. Luke is the one who recorded this in the book of Acts. He's the author. Luke was inspired by the Holy Ghost to record this account. And he remained completely objective on the matter. What I mean is that Luke had no direct opinion in this writing. But rather, he was just recording the facts by the guidance of God. It was inspired, knowing that this was inspired by God. This text If Paul or Barnabas were wrong, it would have been included in the text, but that's not the case. So what can we take from this story? Well, we definitely want unity and fellowship as much as possible. I preach this all the time, week after week. I always focus on the importance of unity in the body of Christ. So we definitely want unity. We definitely want fellowship as much as possible. And we should not be constantly dividing over petty issues, but... When there arises an issue that two Christians cannot agree on, and this issue is so deep and personal that it creates a sharp, unresolvable disagreement of opinions, it is not sinful to go separate ways. It would actually be better to agree to disagree and then separate than for two people to continue together in contention. Let me just remind you that contention can easily breed condemnation and hate towards someone. But even deeper than that, if you are working in a constant state of contention, it will eventually affect the very life, and in this case, the ministries of those people involved. So sometimes it's better to separate than to allow the situation to boil over, and then it becomes sin. This does not apply to a husband and wife divorcing over personal differences of opinions. I want to make that really clear. But this is speaking directly to individuals who come to sharp contentions or sharp disagreements and they cannot settle the dispute, and both are fully convinced that they're both right. And this is a valuable lesson for everyone to learn, ladies and gentlemen. We always need to try to work it out. But when the dead horse is being beaten and the brook is dried up, you can biblically separate and depart from a brother or sister, and it's not sinful. And here's a cool thought. If both parties are solid, born-again Christians— The small division will actually turn into kingdom multiplication. Let me say that again. If both parties are solid born-again Christians, the small division will actually turn into kingdom multiplication. Watch this. Paul and Barnabas went down two separate paths at the split. 
and both of them continued powerhousing with the gospel. They were hitting twice the terrain and they were ministering to twice the amount of people. Even though we hate having to walk away from our fellow brothers and sisters, it can be a good situation in the long run when it's necessary. And just to show that grudges were not held in this situation, because many people are going to say, well, how how do you know? How do you know that Paul didn't hold a grudge? How do you know that John, Mark or Barnabas were not holding grudges? Well, we see in scripture that after the split, Paul references Barnabas and John Mark in other epistles as fellow laborers in the gospel and even sent a referral for John Mark to be well received in 2 Timothy 4.11. So what we see is after the split, they're all continuing to work in the body of Christ, ministering, literally carrying out the Great Commission, and they're still recommending and referencing each other to other believers. So clearly there were no grudges being held in this situation. And the little information that we have on the separation of Paul and Barnabas is actually enough for us to see a few important details. And I want to hit these real quick in closing. Paul and Barnabas did not just bolt on each other in anger. It actually appears in the text that they worked through the details as best they could. And through it all, they decided together that they could not continue to travel and minister as a team. But they came to a solution that they worked towards together. We see that they actually agreed on Barnabas taking John Mark and Paul taking Silas and both teams hitting the mission field separately. Some people overlook this as a solution, but it truly was a solution. And we know that scripture does not condemn either of the men in this account. We also see that this was not an issue of doctrine or false teaching per se, but rather a personal disagreement. We all have different gifting and callings in the Lord. He gives us different gifts, different abilities, all working together as different members of one body. And in that, we're going to have different emotions, different feelings. We're going to land on different understandings of certain situations. And as long as it's not directly going against scripture, we're open to those opinions. But the bottom line is this. God can definitely bring victory and multiplication out of contention. I want to say that again. God can definitely bring victory and multiplication out of contention. No matter what's going on, we must shoot for maintaining unity as best as we can, but realize that going separate ways is not necessarily breaking the unity in the body of Christ. And it's necessary sometimes, as we see here in Acts, work through it. And sometimes working through it, ladies and gentlemen, means going separate ways. Realizing that this is a biblical principle will hopefully bring wisdom and even closure to some of you as we continue on our journeys as Christians. Now, if you've never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've never entered into the family of God, stay tuned and I'll share with you shortly how this can be your day of salvation. Until the next time we meet again, God bless and good night. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted his holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it is absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of his word. It's also impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it is impossible for you to have peace with Yahweh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins. And you can have the wages of your sins 
paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. The Bible actually declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step, regardless of what you may have heard. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Understand that repentance is a process, and it is absolutely attainable because of the grace and mercy and power of God. Because of Jesus Christ and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of all of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He is also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He is willing to meet you right where you are, and He will show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I am so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, who shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins, which offers us the ability to be seen as blameless, before God on that day of judgment. And make no mistake, there will come a day of judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can begin putting on the armor of God and growing in an intimate relationship with Him. It is the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles and learn firsthand what God expects from you. If you don't have a Bible, we highly recommend that you pick up a King James Bible, which is easy for anyone to find. Jesus Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show, and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I sure hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived on our website, fourthwatchradio.com, all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find links to multiple streaming options, and every broadcast is dated and summarized for your convenience. Everything we offer is completely free, including our mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. You can easily click the link on the website to be taken to whichever app store applies to your device. Be sure to stay tuned in every Thursday for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook, and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you, and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the donate link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network.